Now, I remind you again, Paul had already written this body concept in his letter to the church at Corinth, describing the unified body of many diverse parts and gifts, all functioning in unity, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And, Lord willing, we will be there soon, before summer's out, perhaps. But note this. Paul's letter to Corinth came first, before this one. Remember that, verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now I know that whole sentence there is in italics, but it's implied in the Greek. He's talking about the whole reason we've been given these different gifts is that we exercise them uniquely. And then he says, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. He says we've been given gifts. We have gifts. We need to understand the word gifts here is charismata. Charismata. Literally, the gifts are divine powers that enable us to do something we could not or would not otherwise do. Let me say that one more time. It's so important we understand what the gifts are. Charismata. Divine powers enabling us to do what we could not or would not otherwise do. Now, some hear that and they go, All right. Get into the gifts. Get into the power. That's what I'm talking about. I want my power. Avengers time. What's my super gift going to be? What's my power, Lord? Listen to the list. He starts with prophecy. Prophecy. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If your gift is prophecy, and this is not soothsaying, and it is not fortune telling. Like Chuck Smith says, it's not foretelling as much as it's forth-telling. That is, it is speaking forth the Word of God. It's declarative. It is proclamatory. If that's a word, it's proclaiming the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3 says, The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. That's the definition of prophecy. So someone who is the gifted prophet is an edifier, an exhorter, and a consoler, or a comforter. But Paul says this gift, you're given the gift of prophecy if this is what the Lord has allotted to you. He says it must be according to the proportion of his faith. Analogia. Analogia, or it's where we get our word analogous. So if you're given the gift of prophecy, it must be analogous to or according to the proportion of your faith. What does that mean? When you're given the gift, and this is in this case prophecy, given the gift of prophecy, and you've been allotted the amount of faith to be a prophet or to prophesy, what does that mean? It means this, prophecy is not guesswork. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Which means, A, the prophet's not out of control and in some kind of funky trance. And B, that the prophet knows that what he's saying is the word of God. Do you understand me? This is not guesswork. Now we will often say, I think I have a word from the Lord for you, but you need to test this, and that's wise. That's very wise because no prophet wants to be presumptuous. But a prophet knows. Prophet knows when a person is given the gift of prophecy, they know 
Because they've been allotted the faith to know that what they're sharing is of God. And I was functioning, and I don't take credit for this. Please, anytime we're talking about the gifts, understand they do not come from us. But I was functioning in prophecy on Sunday. Because I knew that I knew that I knew that our teaching was not about money. It was about faithfulness. And I knew. I mean, this was so rock solid in my spirit. Half a verse, come on. I was ready to move on to the first two verses that I spent most of our time on tonight in chapter 12. The chapter 11, verse 16, just half of it about lumps and dough. And what do you want me to do this for, Lord? And he was so clear. And I knew that I knew that I knew that the prophetic word for this church body was, Gang, we need to start practicing faithfulness. And one way to do that is in our first fruits offering. Encouragement. Exhortation. I knew it was of the Lord. And the prophet knows when the word comes from God. Why? Because he's been allotted the faith to know. It's speaking what you know to be the edifying, exhorting, consoling Word of God. And let me underscore this with one statement. If you don't know it to be the Word of God, maybe you should shut your big yapper. (laughs) Well, the Lord told me, did He? I mean, are you sure? Well, yeah. Are you just trying to bolster what you want to say? Or did He really? Because if you really did, you will have been a lot of the faith to know that it's from the Lord. And then when you're speaking His Word, you can do so with utter confidence because you know He told you to say it. He's given you the faith to believe it. If you're just trying to shore up Christianese, shut it. Let it be of the Lord. It's a little harsh, Rick. Thank you. It was a prophetic word. No, I'm kidding. Verse 7. So if in prophecy, according to the proportion of faith, it takes faith to prophesy. God gives you the faith to do it. If service in His serving, or He who teaches in His teaching, or He who exhorts in His exhortation, He who gives with liberality, He who leads with diligence, He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I encourage you, go back on your time and look at each one of those. Think them through. Process this. But as in all cases, Paul says the charismata, the the charisma, if you will, is from God. The person utilizing the gift must do so by faith, humbly recognizing it comes from the Lord and not from the self. But here's what I want you to see just in this section. Look at the gifts. Prophecy. Service. Teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. And in that list, with the possible exception of prophecy, not a single one is what we might consider miraculous power gifts. You might read this list and go, that would make for a really kind of boring Avengers movie. (laughs) If these were the superpowers that they had... And we would completely misunderstand that the gifts themselves are not the point. It's what they do. It's how they function for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. 
is how they work in concert one with another. And I am not downgrading or downplaying the power gifts of God. I'm just saying, look at what Paul chooses to underscore and underline to the Roman church. He's already written to Corinth and he's talked about tongues and healings and miracles and power gifts and they're all valid and they're all legitimate today, by the way, as well as in the first century. But when he comes to the church at Rome, he starts talking about prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. Where's the power in this? Hey, the power is in this because these are all manifestations of the Spirit of God. The person who gives with liberality doesn't do it because they just happen to be such a good giver. There's a spiritual gift taking place there. The person who serves naturally doesn't even think about it. I have to think about it. I'll confess it to you. i got to think about stacking chairs. I probably should take care of that. I have to think about vacuuming the house. Cheryl mentions, hey, could you vacuum? Yeah. I am not empowered to do so, I can tell you that right now. But the person who has been gifted with the spiritual gifting, the charismata of service is absolutely as significant, if not more so, than the one over here who is doing miracles. Because it's still the same Spirit who is allotting to each one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, just as He wills. And right now, I don't need someone performing miracles. I just need the sanctuary floor washed. That's that's what I need. Well, I'm not going to wash the floor. I'm waiting for the miracles to come. Well, you're going to miss the opportunity to function in the Spirit of God. He allots the faith. He allots the gifts. He gives these. He doesn't mention some of the more powerful gifts, again, as He does in 1 Corinthians, because the gifts are not the point. What the Spirit is doing, that is the point for the good of the unified body. And we're going to get into the power gifts, and we will have our Avengers movie in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and it's awesome. And exciting and wonderful. And yes, and we, pursue, we should be those, Paul says, you should pursue all the gifts. Go after everything. Don't, don't, don't settle. Well, I'm just a servant. No, you're not just a servant. That's amazing. You're like Jesus when you're that. Seek it all. But understand that it's all by the Spirit of God. Now, the rest of the chapter is purely practical. You're like, Rick, we're in verse 9 and we've got the whole thing to go. I know. Strap on your seatbelt. <laughs> What Paul now gets into is a 25-item, point-by-bullet-point checklist of living out your faith. And this is the section that if you're going to come back and meditate on and think about, look at this. You want to tape it on your bathroom mirror so every morning when you're brushing your scuzzy teeth, you can look at it and you can read through these 25 things and think, this is what I'm going to be about today. That would be a good move. Because it's all preparation for the age to come. Watch this in verse 9. Love without hypocrisy. It's not let love be without hypocrisy. It's love without hypocrisy. Love genuinely. What he's talking about here is love with real love. With actual love. Not feigned or phony or, or love for some kind of kickback. Not love because if I do this, then I get this in return. It's real love. And by the way, the word there is agape. Agape, genuinely, is what he's saying. 
unconditional, genuine love. And it's important to understand we start with this because all of the rest of the exhortations of this chapter flow from that. It all flows from the exhortation to love unconditionally. That's why I believe in Galatians 5.22 and 23 where Paul lists out nine different fruits of the Spirit that the first is love. It's not that there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and love, just one of them. It's love is the significant one. Because it's from the position of love that you have peace. It's where there's unconditional love that you have joy. And patience. And kindness. And goodness. And faithfulness. And gentleness. And self-control. And I probably forgot one. But it all comes of the position of love. In the same way, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12.31, earnestly, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy... I know all mysteries and all knowledge if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. <laughs> but do not have love. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Love genuinely. Unconditionally. Because without real love, it's all just a bunch of noise. But beginning with love, he goes on and says, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Abhor is a strong word in the Greek. It literally means to separate yourself with utter horror from evil. To to pull back. Abhorred, you know. Horrified at the evil that has presented itself to you. To say, oh, I I, I can't even look at that. I can't even think about that. And that's so important because in this age, many of us Christ followers have gotten all too comfortable with the presence of evil. It does not horrify us anymore. It does not shock us. Even in this culture, Gone with the Wind came out and it was the first movie to have a cuss word in it. Frankly, Scarlet, my dear, and you know the rest of the line. And it was abhorrent to many Christians when it first hit the silver screen. (gasps) No, they're saying that? Who bats an eye? Language like that is in children's cartoons now. Does it abhor us? Does it horrify us? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And by the way, that evil there is active evil. He's saying... Separate yourself with utter horror from evil, not just generic evil, the force of evil out there, but evil actively opposed to good. Evil that is opposed to good should horrify us and we separate ourselves from it. We will have nothing to do with it. This is so serious. Paul didn't mess around with this stuff. Not like we do today. And I I, I confess being complicit. Paul said... Immorality, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He was so serious. There were some things Paul said, don't even talk about that. 
Don't even mention that. How are we in this age? How much immorality are we willing to tolerate? Are we accustomed to things that should horrify us? You know what it's like? It's like that scene from My Fair Lady. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie My Fair Lady. I think it's My Fair Lady, right? Where With the song, I've grown accustomed to her face. It sort of makes the day begin. What if she came down the stairs and she was a zombie? Go with me on this. You're in the musical, and whatever his name, Rex Harrison, I think was the guy singing, I've grown accustomed to her face. And down the stairs comes my fair lady, and her face is rotting, and you can see her jaw on the inside, and there's blood dripping down here. She's got an eyeball that's kind of hanging out and bouncing as she walks. I've grown accustomed to her face. That's what he's talking about. I am so used to that rotting, stinking, dripping, grotesque face. I'm just accustomed to it. It doesn't bother me anymore. Have we grown accustomed to evil in this age? Are we tolerating it? Psalm 101, verse 3. David says, I will set no worthless thing before my eye. I love that. That's a great one I think we should take to all of our TVs. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. He doesn't say, I hate those who fall away. I hate the sinner. I hate those who are, who are captive of evil. I don't hate them, but I hate their work. I don't want to read their books. I don't want to watch their movies. And I don't want to listen to their music. I hate the work of those who fall away. He says, it shall not fasten its grip on me. How much? Do we allow our eyes to see stuff that's just pure vanity? Verse 10. Be devoted to one another. Now he says, in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. And now he's not talking agape, he's talking Philadelphia. Brotherly love. That's that warm, affectionate, familial love. Love of family, love of dear friends. But listen, by contrast to this, The love in verse 9, the agape, is not cold and calculating. In fact, the love that's agape is much bigger. You you can't have agape love without having Philadelphia. Brotherly love is an aspect of agape. Agape is the larger umbrella. Brotherly love is a part of that. You don't, as a follower of Jesus, say, I love you unconditionally, Glenn, but I really can't stand your face. You know, I'm up there in my office studying and I hear Glenn's voice downstairs and I know he's going to come up and talk to me. And man, Lord, I need some agape. Bring me agape. And he comes in, Glenn, hey, my friend. Can't happen. Doesn't work that way. I love my brother. I love his laugh. Don't you? I can hear it from his house in Oak Harbor. We have a brotherly love. Glenn and I share Philadelphia. We also share agape. You know what that means? That means when Philadelphia isn't working so great, agape is always working. That means when we, when we have conflict, and I, we never have, but let's say we were to have some conflict. We were just suddenly not see eye to eye. I know it never happens in the church, but a brother or sister, now the, the, the Philadelphia is not clicking, man. Yeah, but agape is. But agape brings about Philadelphia. 
unconditional love causes me to love people I might not have loved otherwise, but now suddenly I kind of have an affection for them. The idiots, you know, I love them. (laughs) They work together. However, brotherly love without agape is conditional. You can't have brotherly love without agape. Lots of people do. I'll love you as long as it feels good. I'll love you as long as there's a a mutual affection or bond between us, but that starts to to fray. I'm out of here. I'm done. We're going to break up. See, that's what our dating culture has done to our mentality of relationship. We're just going to break it off. Well, if you have agape, you don't have that option. The Bible calls us to both. It's not an either-or. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, developed Philadelphia, now move into agape. Now transform into this place of agape its unconditional sacrifice and its family affection. Both together. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, and that's talking about in your spirit, in my spirit. Fervent in our hearts, serving the Lord. Diligent service. How do you do that? Well, the context is by loving His people. Sacrificially, affectionately, diligently. We're still in the context of love. Paul says in Galatians 6.9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 Do not weary of doing good. Because this development of brotherly and agape love in our lives is a long-haul commitment. How many of you could, oh, I don't know, sign a pledge saying you will support one another in ten years? Have you ever thought about your involvement in a church fellowship being long-haul? Well, it feels good right now. It's okay right now because i got some friends and family going here. But if that changes, I'm out. On the Republican side of this whole process, they all signed a commitment. They all wanted Trump to sign the commitment. Have you, did you hear about this? A commitment to support, and I'm just talking about the Republicans here, a commitment to support whoever the candidate is, whoever wins the primary We'll all support 17 people all signing the commitment. And Trump at first was not going to, and they all really got on his case. So he said, okay, I'll sign it. I will support whoever the nominee of the people is. And guess who it is? Trump. And now there are those who signed it saying, I won't support him. Reminds me of some Christians who get into a little tussle with other Christians and say, I will no longer fellowship with you. We are in a long-haul relationship, gang, that is going to go right on into the next age. And I promise you, if you have a problem with a brother or sister in this fellowship or in the church, God is going to assign you with them in the same place for the Millennial Kingdom. (laughs) Serve diligently. Faithfulness is a long-haul. It's a long-haul deal. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoting in prayer. This is a one, two, three punch of a Christ follower's lifestyle. Check it out again. Praise, perseverance, prayer. Praise, that is, 
rejoicing in hope, perseverance, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. You put this together, this is a great way to maintain the lifestyle, the the carry-out Christianity we're talking about. Moving through this age, wherever we go, leading on into the next age. Spurgeon puts it this way, he says, Praise is the chief characteristic of the future state. Prayer is the chief characteristic of the present one. Now more than anything else, we pray. Then, more than anything else, we will praise. Hallelujah. Verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. And the contribution here is not tithes and offerings. This is different. This does not take away from our discussion from Sunday. But this is a different kind of contributing. This is hospitality. This is caring for one another. This is looking after each other. This is meeting needs as they they should pop up. And you don't say, who would ever say, well, I gave my tithe on Sunday morning, and therefore I really can't help you today. Sorry, I've already given it the office. Scrooge. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 describes it this way, the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Bernie Sanders would have loved it. (laughs) Acts chapter 4 verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Gang, that was not tithing. That was just hilarious giving. Because as you know, God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9.7 And the word cheerful is where we get our word hilarious. Hilarion! The giver who just can't help it. Who contributes to the needs, who sees the needs. Lisa Adelot is one of these, by the way. I don't know how many of you know Lisa very well. But we have seen over the years, she is a nutcase when it comes to Providing things for people. If she hears there's a need, don't don't say around her, boy, we really could use a new kitchen table. Because one will show up at your house. She'll find it on Craigslist. And it might not be the one you want. So don't, you know. But that's the mentality. It's just this, this, this giving. Listen, tithing is about faith, as we talked about. Giving is about generosity. They're two different things. We don't tithe because we're generous. We tithe because God is trying to teach us to trust Him with our first fruits. His first fruits. But we give because can't help it. I just want to. It's about generosity. And both faithfulness and generosity are attributes of carry-out Christians. Verse 14, quickly. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. You know what that means? That means if someone's mind is hurting, you're hurting with them. If you are like-minded with someone and they're having a terrific day, you join them in the celebration. Be of the same mind. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly and do not be wise in your own estimation. I know I'm moving quickly here, but go back, think these through, apply them. This is the Jesus-style attitude that doesn't assume that I should get the best seat or the best meal or the best treatment or the best opportunities. No, I'm looking for that in others. When He says, 
Associate with the lowly, literally, that is, accommodate yourself to lowly things. He's not just talking about sharing lunch with a homeless person, although you can do that. He's talking about accommodating your lifestyle to be comfortable with lowly things. Why? Because it's what He did. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. It is one of the most oxymoronical verses in Scripture. God declaring, I dwell on a high and mighty place, high and holy, and with the contrite and lowly. How far did God have to stoop to become Jesus in the flesh? Talk about one who understands what it means to accommodate himself to lowly things. And again, this is a radically different mindset than the one in the age in which we live. And by the way, the parallel between this entire teaching, verse 9 through the end of the chapter, the parallel between this and Jesus' constitution teaching is striking. Jesus' constitution? You know what I'm talking about? The Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus lays out not just a nice teaching on how to be a Christian. He lays out what I believe to be the constitution of the kingdom. That this is how kingdom people function now, citizens of the coming kingdom, but this is going to be the constitution in the kingdom. How we will treat each other, how we will function then. And we are called to do that right now. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I like that verse. I appreciate that Paul said, as far as it depends on you, because it takes a little bit of the pressure off, you see some people are going to wage war. Some are going to come after you. They will try to bait you. They will try to draw you into a fight. And all Paul is saying is, just don't engage. Don't fight back. Don't join them in the dysfunction. Step out of the dance. You can't control the fight in someone else, but you can control the fight in yourself. You cannot change or alter another person. Their transfiguration is not your concern. Yours is. Mine is my concern. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5.39, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. Well, that's fine for you to say, Jesus. It is fine because Jesus is the one, Isaiah 50, verse 6, who gave His back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. So when Jesus says, Rick, I want you to turn the other cheek if someone slaps you, I'm okay with that. Because He turned His cheeks to His beard might be plucked out. By the way, just a side note, Isaiah 50 verse 6 is the only indication in Scripture that Jesus had a beard. But that's how we know He did. Because it got torn out. Bottom line is Jesus never asked you to do anything that He Himself hasn't already done. 
Verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's straight out of Deuteronomy 32.35, the Song of Moses. Paul is just quoting Moses. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. And he said it all the way back through Moses to the people of Israel. Why? Because they needed to hear it for the vengeance that would be taken out for them on their behalf. The God's people, the Jews, were told, don't take your own vengeance. Wow. If anyone had a right, it's Israel. But they were told at first, the Hebrew writer picks up on this, Hebrews 10.30, We know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And for those who think, well, that's just not enough. i got to take out some vengeance too. Listen to this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let Him do it. Leave it to God. We don't have to make a person feel their failure. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, I like this, you will heat burning coals on his head. All right. (laughs) Doesn't that kind of fly in the face of the entire rest of the chapter? Let love be genuine, you know, and brotherly love and take the place of the lowly and all that he's just told us. Now all of a sudden he says, you know, be nice to him because it's going to make them feel like they got hot coals on their head. (laughs) Just doesn't seem to fit. Listen, Paul is not concluding this section by saying, here's how to burn your enemies and to fry your foes. This is a way to really get them. No, first of all, he's just quoting a proverb of Solomon. This is directly out of Proverbs 25.21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. Solomon said it. Paul's just drawing straight out of Scripture and saying, here's the deal. But what does that mean? And there are a couple of possibilities. It's really unclear. In fact, if you dig into this and look at the history of where did this phrase come from this concept some think well it was an ancient Egyptian ritual and there's some evidence of this that in Egypt there was a ritual that involved requiring a person to publicly carry a pan of burning coals around on his head as an act of punishment really did they do that well I don't know I wasn't there but some say that's where this comes from others try to soften it and they say no it has to do with borrowing coal from a neighbor So in uh, the Middle East, someone would be carrying, Oriental style, would be carrying a pan on the head of borrowed coals. Their fire's about to go out. They go next door and they say, hey dude, can I borrow some coals? And and if the neighbor heaps coals on, it's enough coals to keep all the coals nice and hot for for the walk home to put then into your oven or stove. Is that where it comes from? I don't know. But from that perspective, at least it sounds a little nicer. Right? Here's the thing. Either way, Paul is talking about returning the warmth of kindness for the fires of antagonism. Because he's talking about an enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And it's either like putting coals in a pan on his head out of an act of kindness, or it's like putting coals in a pan on his head out of an act of making them feel a little ashamed. I lean, by the way, toward that one. You do? Guilt? Shame? 
Is that a good thing? Listen, returning kindness for hatred is either going to break down the hatred or it's going to increase the guilt. Both are effective tools, especially in the hands of God. I happen to be one who doesn't have a problem with guilt. I think guilt can have its purpose. I don't think, you know, guilt for the sake of guilt, no. But feeling guilty because I've done something wrong, that's my conscience pinging and God saying, okay, now I've got your attention. So either way it works. The bottom line is this. Don't make life easier for an enemy by fighting back. Make life tough on your enemies by loving them. By showing them kindness. Then they have to deal with what they're doing. This is the way Jesus was. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And remember in all of this, as we carry out our spiritual service of worship, we are in priestly training for the next age. That's the real application of all of this. Father, may we be prepared, readied for the age to come. May we be built up and trained up by You. Lord, in all these things, and it's a marvelous list. Holy Spirit, draw us back to this list again and again to consider how we're living our lives and how we might truly be a people transformed. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.